One of the most intriguing figures in the history of American sports is Leroy Satchel Page. Considered to have possibly been the finest pitcher in the history of baseball, Page unfortunately began his career in 1926 when the big leagues were segregated. Given that it took until 1947 for Jackie Robinson to break baseball's color barrier, that should by rights have come too late for Satchel Page. Amazingly, it did not. Not quite. Page became the oldest rookie in the history of the game, and in a storied career spanning 50 years, he accomplished so many feats that people still argue which are fact and which are fiction. Larry Ty, a baseball fan, decided to tackle this remarkable tale of a unique American with a new book. It's titled Satchel, The Life and Times of an American Legend. Larry Ty is a prize-winning journalist at the Boston Globe and Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. He's currently on a book tour in California, and we're delighted to say... Welcome to Radio Parallax, Larry Ty. Great to be with you. Well, uh, one cannot avoid going on at length about the colorful aspects of Satchel Page, but as we start, Larry, I'd like to note that your book illustrates how Page, in many ways, set the stage for integrating baseball, something that, that maybe before your book he's not been given so much credit for. Yes, I'd like to say that if Jackie Robinson was rightfully credited as the father of baseball integration, Satchel Page was easily the grandfather. He was the one who brought the spotlight to the Negro Leagues, brought the spotlight to the Kansas City Monarchs, the all-black team he played for, and he brought the spotlight to the Monarchs' second baseman, Jackie Robinson. The only reason Branch Rickey knew about Jackie Robinson when he signed him to the Brooklyn Dodgers was because he knew about Satchel Page. Well, the, the Negro Leagues uh, have kind of faded into history now, but can you briefly describe what they were like in those days before World War II, and particularly how Jim Crow laws drove their very existence? Sure. After the Civil War, we went through a brief period of Reconstruction trying to build a new racial order in the country. And during that period, it was the earliest integration of professional baseball. Blacks and whites were playing on the same field and on the same team, in professional baseball half a century before Jackie Robinson broke a new color barrier. So I like to say that Robinson reintegrated baseball because we had had that wonderful golden era. Unfortunately, by the early 1900s, much of America was separated into black and white worlds in everything from the water fountains and bathrooms that people could use to public transportation to, most dramatically, the baseball field. It was the all-American pastime, and it reflected America back then. There was an all-white major leagues, and there was a parallel universe that grew up called the Negro Leagues, where only blacks played, and that was the only chance blacks had to show just how good they were in baseball. And it was a scene where, on an average Sunday afternoon in major American cities, the black women would put on their finest shoes, their hats, their mink stoles, and would go to the ballpark. Black men would put on their straw hats and their patent leather shoes. Ministers would let church out early on those Sundays, partly because their congregants wanted to make it to the big featured pitching duel in time, and partly because the ministers did too. <laughs> and in city after city where he played, the Sunday featured pitching duel always included the biggest showman of them all and the biggest crowd pleaser, Leroy Satchel Page. Well, he, he was uh, he was certainly well known to black baseball fans. Maybe the maybe the most famous among the black players. But I, I, I gather he really got known to white America 
when he would barnstorm around with some of the major leaguers like the great pitcher Dizzy Dean in the 1930s and showed that he could, uh, could more than hold his own. He did. He did two kinds of barnstorming. One was going into small towns and hamlets across the country, anywhere a semi-pro team or a bunch of farmers who liked playing baseball at night could put together enough money to entice Satchel and his black barnstormers, Satchel would go. So lots of small towns all across America, people were telling me stories about seeing the great Satchel Page come to town for an evening or an afternoon game. But he also, as you said, did famous barnstorming one season with the great Dizzy Dean, another with the incomparable Bob Feller. He also did something after the Negro League season would be over, and most ball players, white major leaguers, went off and enjoyed their winter off. Satchel would come out here to California, and in cities like San Francisco, he would play baseball in what was the earliest test of integrated baseball in the 1900s. He would play in the California Winter League, where white teams and black teams would play on the same field and show that the sky wouldn't fall. And it was the, the models set in places like California that let people know just how good black ball players like Satchel were and just how great it was watching whites and blacks on the same ball field. Well, Larry, I think I caught a little bit of the aftermath of the California Winter League uh, a play of, of Page. When, when I was a boy, I remember really well my teachers mentioning his name, which I'd never heard. This is maybe the early 60s. And there was just something about how they referred to him. They kind of have a twinkle in their eye that conveyed the fact that this guy just amused the heck out of them. And, and I, I, that was conveyed to, to the kids. And your book relates really well how his sense of humor served Satchel Page really well. And he, he knew he was cracking people up with his, with his comedic talents. He did, and the stories that you were hearing grow, growing up were precisely the stories that encouraged me to write the book. That I had heard those stories, but when I started pressing for more information about this incredible Satchel Page, I realized that most people's knowledge was just an inch deep, and that was because he played so much of his career in the shadows of the Negro Leagues, and nobody had ever really had a chance to see how great he was. But what he would do is if you showed up at the ball field early, Satchel would be there, and he'd be setting up on home plate, a tiny matchbook. And he'd proceed to go back to the pitcher's mound, and at speeds of 100 miles an hour or more, he would throw 10 out of 10 pitches directly over the matchbook. And he did it partly because he was a showman and he knew fans would love that. He also knew that the opposing team would be there watching him warm up, and he'd be planting precisely the seeds of doubt in their <laughs> minds that he wanted to, and he was an extraordinary guy, and he had such control over his pitches and such confidence of his teammates that he would do two things that I'm not sure anybody else ever did nearly as much as he did. One was, during the game, whether he was behind or more often when he was ahead, he would, just as a sign of how confident he was that he could strike out batters, he would call in his outfielders and have them sit in the infield talking to one another or even playing cards while he was pitching to the batter, knowing that any ball hit out of the infield was an automatic home run. But generally, it was three batters up, three batters down, and point made just how good he was. That is such a famous story about Page doing that, and there are so many like that. Uh, and he embellished his own legend so much that it must have been very difficult for you sometimes to sort out fact from legend. It's true, and I want to just give you one number that I use as sort of a metaphor for the fact 
and the legend and where they coincide or don't. The number is 2,500, and that's the number of games that Satchel claimed to have pitched over his career. Now, to put that number in perspective, if he did that, it would have been more than twice the major league record set by Jesse Orozco. So I set out to figure out whether 2,500 could have been real. And when you look at the fact that Orozco, the major league record holder, pitched generally from just April to if he was lucky and made the playoffs October, and he pitched for 20-something years, and then you say, geez, but Satchel pitched just about year-round when he was playing in California or in Latin America, whereas Orozco pitched every fourth or fifth night, like, like most pitchers, Satchel pitched three or four innings every night, and Satchel did it for more than 40 years. I ended up concluding with that number that he was probably underestimating when he said 2,500. And I would say if you look overall at his extraordinary claims, something like 80% of them were true, which raises the question, why would you embellish if it, if it <laughs> called into question that 80%, why invent with the other 20%? And my theory, and I don't pretend to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but my theory is that Satchel knew that while the great white players like Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle had journalists out there covering their every move and fanning their legend, Satchel knew he had to be his own legend maker because nobody was following most of his games in terms of press. And so he talked about it, the press reported it, and sometimes he just couldn't help himself and he exaggerated it. <laughs> Well, again and again in reading the book, I would stop and just say to myself, wow, because, well, many of the things you accepted as having happened because the evidence was there, just to pick one. Uh, at one point, he would partly drive a nail on a piece of wood, stand back, and with a baseball, drive the nail into the wood. It just doesn't seem possible, and yet the, the, the witnesses say he did it. Yes, I call it his ten-penny nail act. And he would, as you say, he'd set up a number of nails in a two-by-four board behind home plate just having them barely in the wood enough to hold there, he'd go back, and from the pitcher's mound distance, he would drive the nails in, which made two points. One was he had the accuracy to hit the nails, and the other was he had the power to pound them into the board. In fact, he had so much power that his catchers would often pad their gloves with beefsteak because they had, in those days, sort of these pancake-like gloves and if you caught Satchel Page for an entire game, <laughs> at the end of the game, your hand would be stinging. So they learned to add in, add in a bit of uh, jerry-rigged cushioning. Wow. You quote uh, Buck Leonard at one point in your book. He was so wonderful in that Ken Burns baseball documentary, um, noting at one point during one game, Page was out playing right field because the, they would rotate around in the Negro League sometimes. A batter hits a fly to that part of the outfield, his teammates are looking for him to make the catch, and instead notice that at that moment he's getting his cigarette lit by a fan. I mean, it's just its so wrong. It was extraordinary. <laughs> it was extraordinary. The other night, uh, just this past Tuesday night, uh, we had a book party celebrating the launch of the book in Boston, and three old ball players, um, one black, two white, who had played against Satchel, um, were there and telling stories. And one of them told a story about when he was playing with the Boston Red Sox, and Satchel was on the opposing team, that Ted Williams saw Satchel heading out to the bullpen with this bucket. And he said, hey, Satch, what's in the bucket? And Satchel said, oh, it's just ice, no problem. And Ted said, I want to see it. 
Satchel said, oh, no, you don't really want to see it. So Ted lifted the towel from the top of the bucket, and he was heading out to the bullpen with three bottles of beer. <laughs> he was a character. The only guy who could ever get away with this stuff was Satchel Page, and he did it because he could boast about the things he would do and back it up, and he was enough of a legend that he could get away with it. The book is Satchel, The Life and Times of an American Legend, and we're speaking with author Larry Ty. To continue on what a character this guy is, I mean, to say that he marched to his own beat is such an understatement. Uh, he, he, your book relays how he's always walking away from contracts, commitments, uh, uh, marriages, <laughs> breaking every rule, and almost always getting away with it. Uh, one thing that struck me, though, in, in that respect, he was in sort of decades ahead of the free agency that got to baseball in the 70s. He, had a lot of, he enjoyed a lot of freedom that other people just didn't. Yes, I would call it a half a century ahead of free agency. Free agency came to the major leagues in 1975. Fifty years before that, Satchel was out there breaking contracts. He'd sign them, he'd get a lot of money, and then when it suited his purpose, he would leave town. The extraordinary thing wasn't so much that he broke the contracts. It was that he was good enough that any chance those same owners got to sign him back, they would. And they did it not just because they loved Satchel, because he was charismatic and intriguing. They did it because he made money, and he put fans in the stands in a way that not only made a profound point to the owners that players had independent power, and that's what free agency was all about, but it made a point later on to white owners like Branch Rickey that star black players could bring in fans and money for them, and that, as much as any notion that segregation was wrong, was why the owners integrated well, at one point, you retraced uh, uh, much of Page's trail down into Puerto Rico, Mexico, Cuba, Dominican Republic. Uh, he spent a lot of time in Latin America where, where black and white players could play together. And I, it really struck me as curious that America was lagging so far behind, say, the Dominican Republic in integration at that time. It was. It was amazing the way white major leaguers and black Negro leaguers would head in the winter to Latin America to pick up some extra money to get uh, some sun and enjoy the wonderful water and, and vacation opportunities there. And they proved the same way they did in the California League that blacks and whites could play on the same baseball field, only unlike in California, where they were playing on different teams, in Latin America, be it the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico or Cuba or even Venezuela, they were often playing on the same team. And so... One of the reasons I'm out here in San Francisco is to do a couple talks in Stockton with a minor league team there and in with the Giants. And when I'm talking with the Giants, uh, joining me will be Orlando Cepeda, whose father, uh, Pedro the Bull Cepeda, played with Satchel in Puerto Rico and in the Dominican Republic. And they showed black, white, brown, greatest baseball players from around the world showed how wonderful they were when they played together. A surprise for me uh, in reading your book was the fact that uh, when it came to the matter of integration, America's sports columnist really really got on board that bus. Uh, you note that they really tend to be unlikely agitators because they, they're usually apolitical, but in this case they really spoke up. They spoke up for a simple reason, because sports writers are better than anybody at recognizing sports talent, and they saw Satchel's extraordinary talent. They saw him in California. They saw him when he was barnstorming. And most of all, they saw him when he was out with great white players like Feller 
and Dizzy Dean, and they thought, geez, what would it be like if all of America got to see Satchel? So it was Collier's, it was the Saturday Evening Post, it was Time, it was the New York Times. These newspaper reporters started writing about this. White fans started going and watching the Negro Leagues, and it was always, when they talked about this, the articles and the fans, the one they talked about, he wasn't the only great player, but he was the one everybody talked about. It was Satchel. And yet, when it came time to integrate baseball, it was not Satchel who was the one to, to break that barrier. It was Jackie Robinson. Uh, and it, it, it does seem that you know his ability and the dues he'd paid should have made him the first, but his incorrigible nature and roguishness, I think, uh, kind of got in the way. Yes, you add to the fact that he was, as you say, incorrigible and roguish, the fact that Branch Rickey, who was doing the signing, was somebody who was a teetotaling, very straight-arrow guy, and Satchel wasn't his kind of guy. Satchel, at the time that Ricky first signed Robinson, was 39 years old, which seemed old, and Satchel wasn't having the best year of his career. And yet, there's more of a consensus now that given how Satchel performed when he did get, get his chance in the majors, that it would have been real justice if Satchel had been the one to break the barrier. Another great quote from your book. You quote Roy Campanella, who became a teammate of Jackie Robinson, saying that Without the Brooklyn Dodgers, you don't have Brown versus Board of Education. And, of course, blacks joining the big leagues really did pave the way for the civil rights movement, and, and Satchel was able to catch that wave. They did. The safest way, rather than testing it out in schools or even in buses, the best way for huge numbers of Americans to see firsthand just how much equality made sense was to put the best of the white and black athletes on the same ball field and blacks like Jackie Robinson from the very start showed how great they were. And that was the way this was. you got to start with, it was 1945 when the Dodgers signed to a minor league contract Jackie Robinson. We're talking about a full decade before Brown versus Board integrated the public schools. And having America get used to the idea of racial integration it happened on the ball field, just like Roy Campanella said, and just like Satchel had been calling for for 20 years before that. So it's 1948. Uh, on his, I guess his 42nd birthday, Page signs a contract, becoming the oldest rookie in baseball history. Uh, soon shows that he still has talent, draws tremendous crowds, helps the Cleveland Indians to a championship. It's a chapter right out of you know a Hollywood script. It is, and he was. He knew that a lot was riding on whether or not he could perform. When he first went out to the field, the, you could hear fans whispering, he's an old man, what's he doing out here? He's 42 years old. Those same fans, by the end of the game, were generally whispering, geez, if he's this good now, <laughs> what would he have been like in his prime? And as a sign of just how good he was, that year 1948, where he was signed in July to help the Indians to the pennant and to the World Series, 12 voters voting for the Associated Press Rookie of the Year gave it to Satchel. And his response, I thought, was beautiful. He said, I loved it, but I wasn't quite sure what year they were talking about. <laughs> uh, I have to note one, one final remark upon his athleticism, which, which really surprised me. In 1957, you noted that Satchel Page tossed a baseball 427 feet, it may well have broken the world record, and at that time, he's over 50 years of age. He is, and what's extraordinary to me is when I heard these stories, if I heard them once, I would have said, geez, 
somebody else is embellishing. It's a long time, you know, they're remembering it. But when you hear it from a, an old curmudgeon like Whitey Herzog, mm -hmm. who was the one who was telling that story and was the one who was there as the eyewitness, and then you hear other people repeat similar stories, it was shocking, and yet it's not surprising. And Satchel, when he came back, his last three innings in the major leagues, when he pitched for Charlie Finley's Oakland A's, um, in what was supposed to be just a fun night to fill the stands, Finley set him up in the bullpen with a nurse in a rocking chair. <laughs> he brought him in, figuring he'd get shelled. He ended up pitching three innings of shutout ball against the Boston Red Sox. The only member of the Red Sox to get a hit was Carl Yastrzemski, who came in after the game and gave him a bear hug. Satchel that night set a record. 59 years, two months, eight days, a record for longevity in baseball that will never be broken. His catcher that night was a full 30 years younger than him. You know, I can remember in 1965 when that happened, it made the national news. It did. It made the national news, and Satchel's response is, now they know how good, I'm, good I am, I'm going to stay in shape and be ready for the next call. <laughs> and unfortunately, he never got that next call. Well, after he finally did retire in the 1960s, uh, there was a movement, perhaps started after Ted Williams gave a speech, um, to get black payers finally into baseball's Hall of Fame, and Satchel again had a role to play. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Satchel was the first of the Negro Leaguers to be admitted to the Hall of Fame based solely on their Negro League record, not on the major leagues. And most of the black players, the great thing was he was the only one of the old Negro League superstars to be able to make that transition to the majors. Generally, it was young guys like Jackie Robinson who had been in uh, for barely a cup of water in the Negro Leagues, and they were the ones called up. But Satchel was one of the old Lions. He made it in. He said, I'm here representing everybody from Josh Gibson to all the other great ball players who didn't live to see this happen. And yet, even then, in 1971, when the Hall of Fame was trying to remedy all of its past injustice, its first instinct was to say, we're going to put him in a separate corridor and basically once again segregate racially, the Hall of Fame even. And the press and the public had such an outcry that they finally said he's going to be here in the midst of everybody else. And when you go to the Hall of Fame today, if you go in the side, the major side entrance to the hall, you will see this spectacular statue of Satchel in his classic pitching pose with his arm raised and his leg kicking up that it looks like it's blacking out the sky. Yeah, I, I, I just want to make passing note that he had such a strange uh, style that it would, it would confuse batters, that he had this really odd way of kicking his foot in the air, whipping his arm around, that really, again, the genius that he was, that worked to his advantage. It did, and he learned that style like he learned generally how much talent he had and how to marshal it. When at age 12, he was sent to a reform school called the Alabama called the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. And it sounds like a horrible institution. In fact, it was a place that marshaled his talents, that showed him how to kick his leg high, how to extend his arm forward so it looked like it was in the batter's face when he released the ball, and it became known as the page pose. <laughs> well, as we, as we wrap up, Larry, do you have, any, you have a favorite among the myriad quotes uh, that are attributed to Satchel Page? Sure. My favorite is, and it's the saddest, but it's also the most profound. It was Satchel saying, first they told me I was too black, then they told me I was too old. 
Well, I'd, I'd like to offer up a little, a little happier one. My, maybe, maybe my favorite. He once said, "Age is a case of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter." It's <laughs> a wonderful quote. We've been speaking with biographer Larry Ty. His new book is Satchel, The Life and Times of an American Legend. Larry, I want to thank you for, first of all, taking up the time to write a book about Satchel Page, which was long overdue, and then secondly, to talk to us about it. I want to thank you for giving me the chance. Thanks very much. All right, and good luck with that event with Orlando Cepeda, and I guess Willie Mays is showing up as well. I hope so. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Taking you nowhere Angel Come up, baby Look at that sky, life's begun Nights are warm and the days are young 